Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. Today's episode is about the Hijra community, specifically during the time of colonial rule. When the British ruled the subcontinent, one of their preferred tools of control was classification. To better control the population, they grouped and categorized people, putting them in boxes. But with the Hijra community, they couldn't do that. They couldn't put them in a box. And that made them a threat to the British. So what did the British decide to do? They tried to exterminate the Hijra community. It's a really fascinating chapter of history, very complex and layered and really leads into a bigger conversation about gender and sexuality. Our guest today is Jessica Hinchy, author of Governing Gender and Sexuality in Colonial India. Her book is really captivating and follows the Hijra community during the late 1800s. It's going to be a great episode. And also, if you're enjoying Brown History and you want to support and help keep it moving forward, do consider being a patron. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Any contribution will go a very, very long way. That was a bit of a longer intro than usual, but let's move on to the main show now. Here we go. All right. Okay, so I think before we get started, I'm a little scared to say the word hijra or eunuch. So I wanted to know if that was considered, uh, you know, derogatory or uh, at that time and today. Yeah, so the term eunuch um, is definitely a colonial category, right? Um, And I... Uh, in my written work, like I usually put scare quotes around it. Unfortunately, it is sometimes necessary to use that term because it was the official category and actually um, quite a wide range of people were classified as so-called eunuchs, um, Mm -hmm. not just members of the Hydra community. So sometimes you sort of need to use it in that sense of the, yeah, I guess like the official colonial category. Um, but I think when we're talking about members of the Hydra community, just Hydra is, is much better, but it is, it is important to keep in mind, right, that this criminalization project actually didn't only affect members of Hydra households and lineages. Pakistan, Khwajasara is preferred, so that's just something to keep yeah, in mind. Yeah, that's what I was going to, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah, but um, I, I think it's it's okay to, I mean, we can keep that in mind that, you know, some yeah. in, in different parts of South Asia, people may prefer other terms as well. Right. Yeah. So how would you define uh, a hijra, you know, during at least, you know, the definition during the time of the British Raj? Right. So, I mean, I guess the, the question of how to define hijra is one that um, has certainly been a matter of a lot of scholarly debate and also in the past was a matter of a lot of discussion between uh you know British colonial officials and also elite Indian men um and so from that point of view I'm also sort of like reluctant to fix um who a hydra is especially because you know I'm I'm looking at a particular period but I guess there's a really rich anthropological literature um that can sort of help us out with giving at least a sense of like some of the community um structures or patterns I guess um so I guess the term hydra is often associated with people who um, perform um, and collect donations, um, especially at times of celebration like births, but also in other times and spaces as well, um, and who are often members of discipleship lineages um, or discipleship-based households, although people outside those households may also call themselves hydra and use that term. Um, and also people who often embody forms of femininity in their um, dress, uh, in their names or 
um, uh, grooming or behaviours, but also sometimes may sort of embody aspects that are at least like normatively considered masculine as well. So there is, um, and anthropologists have talked about some of the, you know, fluidities in, in heterogender, which are important. So I guess that that's sort of like the main um, aspects that we can see in the present, but also come out of historical sources as well. In the 19th century, certainly there was um, a real fixation on the part of, of the British with the Hydra body and trying to make their bodies legible to, um, you know, categories like eunuch, um, also impotent um, and, um, and a number of other sort of categories too. Um, so the it's a little bit difficult to answer that question from the historical sources as a result of that, right? Because there's so much sort of obsession with fixating a hydra body. Um, but certainly anthropologists um, who are working more on contemporary hydra communities have talked about there being multiple embodiments. Um, so, and multiple ways, so not a single embodiment that is associated with like authentic hydraness either, right? Um, so some hydras may um, be castrated, well, emasculated or castrated, have the Nivan operation um, or other forms of um, gender um, alignment surgery um, or procedures, um, but um, others may not. Um, and so, I think the emphasis that a lot of scholars would have is that, you know, there's not a singular embodiment and that that's just one aspect of, of Hydra identity. Growing up, I heard a lot of stories that for one to become a Hydra, one is usually kidnapped. A kid is kidnapped and becomes castrated or um, people castrate themselves as sacrifice to a, a sort of Hindu goddess. Mm. Is That's probably the dominant narrative that goes around, I guess. Mm. Can you able tell me what's really going on? So I can tell you how that was sort of discussed in the 19th century and, and yeah. maybe put that in a little bit of a um, broader historical context as well. So the, okay, if we talk in the like second half of the 19th century, a lot of my work has been on the sort of anxiety about the Hydra community, particularly among British colonial officials, but also among sort of, you know, elite, educated um, North Indian men as well. Um, and for both of those broad groups, um, this narrative of the Hydra kidnapper was um, was quite central, right, to their construction of the community. So British colonial officials sort of framed the Hydra community as a threat to the Indian boy child and Indian family. Um, and that was really central to how um, the British justified the criminalization of the Hydra community, which I think maybe we'll get into more in, in yeah. a second. Um, so that then be, that criminalization then became a child saving project. Um, and then on the other hand, you also have, um, you know, relatively elite educated men who are often calling themselves middle class, you know, in this late 19th century period, um, who also were, um, I mean, one of the main ways that you see Hydras come, being featured in, say, North Indian newspapers is in um, stories about castration or other threats to children. And so in the book, I tried to both sort of uh, 
unpack that, right, and deconstruct it, but also to historicize it. Um, and certainly, even within the colonial archive, it's really clear that there were multiple paths into the Hydra community, um, that people were initiated as adults, um, as well as you know, ages that today we might define as child, though, of course, mm. like the historical um, construction of childhood is a, is a question there. Um, so both, you know, older and younger people were initiated. Um, it's quite clear that um, also among younger people that who were within Hydra households that some were given to Hydras, whether because they had atypical embodiment or because of famines and, and you know, it, because their families were impoverished. Um, there were also children who ended up in Hydra households for other reasons as well, often living with their family members, right, their natal family members and Hydras. So that idea of like this clear separation between a Hydra household and natal kinship actually, you know, historically doesn't pan out wow. or even in the present as well. Um, and some children do appear to have been um, sold while they were young and eventually um, purchased by Hydras or sold when young and then ended up in a Hydra household. But that was just one entry point into Hydra communities. And I think it's really important to historicize that within broader practices in the 19th century. So um, within discipleship-based communities, so monastic sort of estates or, um, you know, ascetic communities, it was very common for child disciples to um, have been enslaved when they were young. And so there, is, there are those overlaps between discipleship and enslavement that we see um, and not just within the Hydra community, actually much more broadly. Um, but it's also only one way that discipleship relationships were formed. So it was very, basically, there's a lot of different ways and it's very complicated and it's very layered. Yeah, absolutely. And that just doesn't come through in a lot of the historical records, but you see yeah. it um, at sort of like the margins of the archive. Right. Yeah. We'll talk about the archives in a bit. Um, so I guess if I'm, I want to picture the Hydra community, and I know that your work is uh, focused on during the colonial rule. Mm -hmm. So I know that 1857 is kind of a, of a marker where the British start to take a bit more of an aggressive uh, stance on things. So before the British start to get aggressive and, and, and become more focused on governing society, what was the Hydra community without the British before not just not too before but like when they were left alone what was the Hindu <laughs> community like in in Indian society amongst Indian uh, neighbors and the elites and the royalty and all that yeah so that's an area where we need a lot more research but the research that has been done I think is really important um and it's not just been done by me it's been done by other people as well I think Nicholas Abbott's work on um on northern India is really important there as well so um in the 18th century so the 1700s um we know that a number of um Indian states regional states patronized the Hydra community. Um, and they did that in a few different ways. So by patronizing their, um, being the patrons of their uh, performances. 
So we know that in Ovid in northern India, um, hijras would perform for like the, for royal women, you know, the women of the royal household. Right. Um, we also know that some states like the Maratha state, for instance, also gave um, hijra lineages um, like grants of rent-free land or sometimes cash allowances as well oh, as really? recognizing their yeah as well as recognizing their right to um do badhai work so to collect donations and and also perform um and so that you know and that gets sort of understood by the british as a right to begging but right. um that was recognized by um some um pre-colonial states we also know that the attitudes of um, of Indian elites do seem to be sort of a little bit ambiguous towards the Hydra community. So there's all these ways in which they are the patrons of Hydras, but Hydras were also, it, it would seem, um, relatively socially marginal, marginal, right? And were sometimes viewed as uh, being sort of sexually um, immoral um, or associated with sort of like with gender um, variance in a sort of like negative way right and mm -hmm. so they are portrayed in negative ways as well in elite discourse okay. um, so really we need more research on that but the picture we get is is a sort of ambiguous one, but one of a community that is certainly a part of like cultural life, right? And is sometimes performing for, you know, the highest status people, right, within society. Right. Um, but in other not ways, criminals. no, not not criminals, but also relatively marginal people, but people who are entitled to the support of the state in certain ways, right? Yeah. Um, that what changes, um, particularly from the 1830s, is that we see that patronage from Indian states starting to um, change. So partly that's because it, these Indian states are being taken over by the East India Company, right, which is no longer recognising those grants um, to, you know, rent free lands or to cash allowances or other sorts of support. So that's one factor. Um, another factor is that the Indian states that haven't been taken over the East India Company are in some cases um, uh, no longer um, being such good patrons of the Hitler community, right? And in some right. cases also having sort of um, anti-Hydra projects, which at least we know at least happened in um, in Ovid in, and in Lucknow in you know the 1840s. So that begins to change, and it's really from the 1830s also that the British are increasingly sort of viewing the Hydra community as not just sort of like. Um, a, a, an issue of gender and sexual morality, which you see in earlier accounts, but actually like as a problem of governance and as a threat to colonial authority. Like as if like there are people they can't control basically. Yeah, they're ungovernable. They're seen yeah. as ungovernable. Um, and it's also from the 1830s that more, um, you know, there are shifts in colonial governance as well, right, and, and increasingly a language of reform to Indian society, which I think can be overstated because ultimately the 
the colonial government is trying to consolidate and centralize its very fragmented authority. But that language of reform often um, also is applied against the Hydra community from the 1830s. That's interesting. I was very surprised to learn that there are different kinds of roles that Hydras took in, in Indian society. Can you elaborate more on that? Right. So so I think that's a, an important question too, right, for historians. It's like, what is the relationship between all these terms that we see in the historical records? Yes. So, yes. yeah, and the term Kodasara is one of these terms that's used for um, people who are um, enslaved um, eunuchs who work as I mean, actually in a lot of different roles, right, as domestic servants, but also as guards and um, of the female quarters, but actually in all sorts of roles. So like as bureaucrats and scribes, um, military commanders, people who were um, sort of managing the businesses of their um, slave owners, um, who were like revenue farmers, which was sort of like, a, I mean, like we're involved in revenue collection, right? They were intelligentsias mm -hmm. and spies, all sorts of different roles. Um, and they could become quite socially um, and politically powerful, um, although they were enslaved um, and were of slave origin. So the Kajasara um, community and the Hydra community and their historical relationship is something that we need to know more about. Um, Kajasaras historically were um, like masculine presenting, right? They, they wore masculine clothing. They often sort of adhered to elite norms of masculinity, mm. um, whereas Hydras are usually depicted as um, wearing feminine clothing and sort of embodying femininity in other ways. Um, and it does seem, although Kajasara's social position varied quite a bit, depending on how, like, how high they climbed up the ladder, right, of the, um, of the political structure, they did have a more sort of socially um, elite position or were able to have more social mobility um, it seems than than hydras as well, but um, they do seem to. There may have been historical interactions between the, those two communities, and um, there also was a sort of um, association in like the writings of elite men between these two groups. So sometimes um, the Kajasaras would be sort of associated with hydras in certain ways through the writings of non-Kwajasara elite men, and that would be a way to criticise Kwajasaras as well. So there's, there may have been like interactions between these groups, and, I, and particularly in the 19th century, there are narratives that suggest that some Kwajasaras entered hydra communities. It's a little bit hard to figure out if that was the case. But yeah, the, the history of the Kwajasara is really important, and there's been quite a few people who have worked on that, um, like Ruby Lal and Nicholas Abbott and Johnny Chatterjee, Emma Kalb, who's doing some really good work on the Mughal Empire. I was surprised to know that there was a, um, I don't know, there's a system of gurus and disciples and students and mentorship yep. within the Hydra community. Can you, can we talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect of this history. So um, Hydra households were generally structured between, by relationships between gurus and chelas or disciples. 
Um, and those were really very important relationships um, in Hydra's lives. And they, you know, the rich anthropology that I mentioned before shows that that's the case today as well. Um, that was part of the problem with the Hydra community from the British perspective, because these are like non-heterosexual, non-patrilineal, non-conjugal right, relationships and ways of structuring communities. And so um, in the 19th century, there is this sort of privileging of those forms of patrilineal um, and um, sort of reproductive um, sexuality-based forms of succession and inheritance under colonial law and also um, uh, sort of within elite Indian politics as well. And so that's one of the reasons why the Hydra community are a problem. But um, those relationships are really important. There were also relationships between Hydras who were related by those discipleship lineages, but what who would call each other by kinship terms as well. So those discipleship relationships, I think, you know, should be seen as, I mean, certainly as a really important form of relatedness, but also as a form of kinship. Um, but of course, they're not recognized as such by the state. So wait, why, we understand why, it seems like they were just living together and having a good time and everyone's at peace. So why would the British spend their time and energy worrying about what's going on inside the Hydra household? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And it's sort of uh, one of the questions of my research, right? That I, because on the one hand, this is a relatively small community in the grand scheme of things. Right. right? And, um, and, and so why are they seen as posing a political threat? And I think that tells us a lot. So there's a few different reasons. Um, you mentioned 1857 before, and certainly the concern from British colonial governments with the Hydra community predates 1857, but it does intensify after 1857. And that's partly because the British are very concerned with their what they see as their gaps in their knowledge of the social margins and so actually in this period in the 1860s 1870s that's when you get um a whole set of colonial projects targeting the social margins so the criminal tribes who were socially marginalized um often caste marginalized groups who were classified as hereditary criminals this is when you get projects with um European vagrants, right, um, with other kinds of mobile people, with prostitutes, all these, you know, people on the social margins and the Hydra right. community are one of them. So there's that control, that control of a sort of social periphery. Um, the British also see Hydra's Badhai practices, their donation collection and performance practices as um, involving uncontrolled mobility, right? And so they see them as wandering people, although it does seem that Hydra mobility practices varied quite a lot and um, that generally speaking, they were pretty sedentary people, but they're seen as being wandering and the British associate so-called wandering people with criminality, right? Wow. That's, that's one factor. Um, I mean, this period, especially from the 1850s, the British are trying to classify and count the population. Um, and so groups that are 
seen as illegible, right? Hard to hard to know and categorize are uh, in general sort of a concern of the colonial government. And I think the ways that heterogender um, appeared to the British to trouble like a binary category of man and woman um, and the British need to sort of slot hydras into the category of man, right, and to not recognize their gender embodiment and expression um, also means that they're seen as being like ungovernable in all these ways because they can't, right. yeah, the British really tr tr can't classify them. They're frustrated when census returns come back with like both male and female hydras, like, and also both Muslim and Hindu hydras. Like, how does this happen? So, some of that. The, this is a period in which the British are um, trying to um, have, I guess, like there's all these projects with um, sanitation and um, public order, public nuisance, um, policing, and so Hydras are seen as being both an obscene presence in public space but also as being sort of disorderly and often are described through terms for like filth and dirt. Um, and so it intersects with that policing of public space as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's all the sort of child saving aspects that we talked about before and the ways in which that child saving narrative really legitimizes the criminalization of the Hydra community. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So now the, the British have themselves a Hydra problem, I guess. Mm -hmm. How do they go about to figure out how to solve it? Right. So um from the 1860s in northern india um the colonial government um first of all they register people who they classify as eunuchs and um that term eunuch was actually used in um pretty nebulous ways <laughs> to classify a broad range of people so hydras but also other people who um were assigned the male gender um, but who um, embodied femininity and also especially people who were performers as well. Um, and so, um, for instance, people who were known as Zanana, um, who seem to have had contextual gender expression, um, sometimes. What does that mean? Like they were, they were female clothing? Uh, sometimes, and then sometimes also wore male clothing. Oh, they're depicted sometimes wearing male clothing, sometimes wearing female clothing. Some accounts suggest that they wore male clothing when they were with their families, um, and they were often male, like householders, had that male householder role. And then they would dress um, in feminine clothing when they were with others and honors. And I they see. seem to have had links to the Hydro community as well. Um, and there were a number of other sort of groups of like, for instance, um, people who um, were devotees and who actually um, like men who were devotees but embodied um, forms of femininity or dressed in women's clothes in the course of their devotion right, and their ritual right. practices. So all these sort of people get classified as um, eunuchs because of the ways that they um, have non-normative wow. gender practices, right? Um, so they register people who they classify as eunuchs. Um, and then um, in the 1860s, they also begin to remove children from the households of so-called eunuchs. Um, so that is an attempt to 
as they, as the colonial government puts it, to cause the Hydra community to die out, right? And it's very explicitly um, an eliminationist project. So they use words like extinction, extirpation, um, and so on. And then in 1871, you have the passage of the Criminal Tribes Act. And the second part of that law was targeting so-called eunuchs. And so that law formalizes some of those practices. So you have police registers um, being drawn up again, um, removal of male assigned children under um, of 16 and under, and also um, performance and wearing women's clothes in public is banned. Um, there's some provisions that interfere with hydra succession and inheritance practices um, and property registers are drawn up um, so that they can, you know, control both those discipleship practices and then inheritance and succession um, and adoption is banned as well. Wow. So when you, when you say register, you mean basically they, they keep, they put their name in a database. Well, there's, I mean, not a computer database. This is no, all no, on paper. But, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The equivalent. You know, yeah. And actually like registration, like it might sound really bureaucratic and, yes. and sort of like, why is, why is that so important? But um, registration was actually a very important form of um, colonial policing and governance in this period. And so the so-called eunuch registers are among um, many different kinds of registers that the colonial government and the colonial police are drawing up in this period, um, which really do affect the lives of the social margins because um, you have registers for people who are defined as being badmash or bad characters um, who are often just socially marginalised people, right? Um, right? And their names are put on another set of registers, which are the bad character registers. You've got criminal tribes registers in this period. So, um, and what that does is like, it doesn't just record their names and their addresses and their age and other sort of personal details, but it's really intended as um, a way to um, sort of keep police surveillance over these households um, and also to track um, initiations into the Hydra community so that they, and that's in the hope that the, the colonial government will be able to prevent initiations and therefore cause hydras to die out. How did the hydra community resist and survive colonial rule once their name gets in the database or even mm. when they're not in the system? Yeah, so there's really quite um, extensive accounts of their resistance. It, like you don't actually have to go very... Uh, look very far for it, right? It, it's pretty front and centre of colonial records. Um, and they do so in a, a number of different ways. Um, one of the key ways is to um, keep on the move, um, to either sort of permanently move from the town or the city or village that they lived in um, and hope that the police won't track them down in their new residence, or sometimes just moving around like, um, traveling to other towns or cities where they know people for periods to try to sort of like get the police off their backs. Um, and those mobilities really make it very difficult for the police to keep track of 
um, members of the Hijra community because there isn't any way for them to control the, their movements. So unlike some other groups that were policed in this period, like the criminal tribes, um, there isn't a past system or a system of permits for um, for migration or movement that restricts their mobility. So that's one of the really important ways that um, members of the Hijra community and other people who are labelled eunuchs are able to sort of evade the police. They also um, continue to perform in public places, although that's illegal under the law, and also to wear um, feminine clothing in public, although feminine clothing was much more um, sort of strictly policed by the colonial police than performance was. Um, so people could often get away with performing if they did so in male clothing or in a sort of gendered mix of clothing that they could try to like, you know, make an argument Oops. for. Yeah, and there are accounts of people, as one colonial official put it, sailing very close to the wind in the matter of dress, right, i.e. trying to embody their gender in ways that will not get them arrested by the police but will still sort of enable them to, you know, express um, their gender. So, um, yeah, so breaking those laws against performance and um, and uh, women's dress in public is is very important. Um, under the law, they could also perform and um, embody whatever gender in private spaces as well. So you know that becomes an important context um, for their continued um, you know gender and cultural practices. In addition. Um, collecting donations wasn't actually illegal. So Matai is a really important um, context in which, you know, Hydras can continue to maintain their relationships to local communities, continue to have a public presence as well without actually breaking the law unless they were performing or wearing feminine clothing. Um, and what else? They also try to um, prevent their property from being registered um, by the police. Um, also try to stop um, the government from um, taking over the property of deceased um, community members when people die. Um, the government did um, often um, claim the property of deceased people under the Criminal Tribes Act. And, yeah. um, but, you know, it's quite clear that Hydra households were um, attempting to stop that from happening. Often they claimed really huge um, funeral expenses and said, oh, we spent all the money on the funeral. And I mean, people did have very extravagant funerals, in fact, but it does seem like often those claims of like, we spent like 700 rupees on the funeral, which is a huge amount at the time, right, was a way to like stop the property from escheating to the government. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And I guess continuing to, um, form those discipleship and kinship relationships, right, is, is one of the most important forms of um, resistance and survival as well. And I, just on that, I will say, um, you know, it's, it's quite clear that the Criminal Trials Act did really affect people's livelihoods because it prohibited performance. And so that affected people's ability to make a living and also it affected um, 
Hydra's ability to conduct their Batai practices and collect donations as well. Um, so, you know, there are reports of um, people petitioning um, because they say they are starving. Um, colonial officials sometimes write of people starving um, or being in like really precarious situations. But Hydra communities do um, continue to initiate disciples, they do continue to have a public presence um, and and clearly do get by, right, as, right. as they can. Was there no intersection between uh, Christianity and the Hijra community? Do you mean in terms of like conversion or in I terms guess, of yeah. The, I mean, yeah. one conversion and two, I guess one of the one of the excuses of colonialism was like mm. we're going to convert them you know jesus christ and all that so yeah was that in play too okay so that's a good question so i have never ever read of any european saying that they should convert hydras or other people they call eunuchs um and i mean that's also because the project was to eliminate right, right and to right. um make the hydra community extinct and so that actually shapes a whole set of this these policing practices right there's you might have noticed aside from banning performance there's no effort to get hydras to do sorts of work that are defined as productive right whereas when other marginal groups are policed in very similar ways there's this focus on making them do productive labor right so um, but back to the question on um, Christianity, it does play a role um, in the colonial um, project against the Hydra community in that um, quite a few of the colonial, high-ranking colonial officials in northern India in this period did have um, evangelical leanings and close connections to evangelical communities or missionaries and you do see sometimes uh, that sort of language coming through it's it's often not explicit because it was sort of like not politically um okay to be too on the nose about this you know about the sort of christian dimensions of colonial government projects um but it's certainly there and i think where you see it come through very clearly is in all the child saving rhetoric that um oh. gets voiced around the hydra community um right. and um yeah that then it comes through very 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 clearly um so i and just on religion maybe it's a sort of like tangentially connected but um the it's like there's quite a lot of sort of crossovers between um, what we might classify as Hindu religious practices or um, beliefs or um, narratives. Um, and then what we might see as um, Islamic practices, beliefs, narratives in, in Hijra's sort of everyday religious lives in the present. Um, and that varies in different parts of South Asia right, how those crossovers work definitely does vary within India and Bangladesh and Pakistan, as well as between like the, the post-partition nation states. But um, we also see a lot of those sort of crossovers between, you know, sort of um, more Hindu or Sufi ascetic idioms and then like 
various Hindu and um, more Sufi or other Islamic practices in, in the past too. And that's sort of like one of the elements of the British confusion about the Hijra community as well, is they can't pin down what their religion is and they associate the Hijra community with Islam very clearly and they associate eunuchs in general with Islam. But right. then that's sort of troubled in all these ways. Um, you know, why is a good question. I mean, I think it... Uh, in large part can be traced to much longer longer histories of narratives associating Islam with this idea of oriental despotism and eunuchs get sort of brought into that, right? And this is partly because like European interactions with say, with various um, Islamic um, polities, whether it's like the Ottoman Empire, the Mughal Empire and so on. And so it, it, eunuchs become part of that sort sort of oriental despotism stereotype that right. gets re sort of voiced in all these different ways and um you know and i think some of that endures as well um and 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 also the but then i guess in the present i'm going on a massive tangent here apologies it's all good i, I love it it's good <laughs> But in the present as well, the Hijra community has got yoked to sort of Hindu nationalism as well um, in some very um, troubling ways. And so also the association of the Hijra community with Hinduism has been deployed in um, in present day India in ways that I think a lot of Hijra and trans and um, other LGBT activists are really pushing back against as well. So. Anyway, that was, that was a big tangent. Sorry. Okay, well, that was going to be my last question, but we'll get back to that. Okay. So now you have these, like, um, an archive of of the names and documents regarding all the uh, people from the, people who were labeled as so-called eunuchs. Mm. Did we, did you, did you guys learn anything from reading all these records that you guys didn't know before about their lives and who they were as a community and what they did in their... Yeah. In their lives yeah so i mean i think you do have to read these um 19th century records really carefully right because uh of the very criminalizing context in which they were produced um but i did find that police registers did uh, often um trouble or sort of destabilize some of those more dominant narratives that we get either from sort of colonial records or from um you know the writings of elite indian men and the north indian newspapers and so on so one of the ways where the registers actually sort of gave me a much more um complicated view of the Hijra community was actually around their work. Um, so, uh, you know, most anthropologists who have worked on Hijra communities in the present have talked about um, Badhai work and, you know, performance and donation collection and other forms of begging. Um, they've talked about sex work um, in the present, um, but haven't, we get actually a very picture of, um, Hydra work in the 19th century from those police registers. So it's quite clear that most people who were classified as eunuchs were performers or engaged in donation collection in some way. But they also, in addition, were often in, involved in agriculture. Um, some were um, 
like were cultivators, but a lot were like um, agricultural laborers who were like paid by the day sort of thing or involved in animal husbandry as well. So most people who were classified as eunuchs had a goat or had, you know, if if they could, a cow or, you know, a few few animals, right? Um, And so that picture of their varied forms of agricultural work is something that um, I wasn't expecting to see because it doesn't come through at all in other sorts of 19th century records that I had read. Um, and I think it also really puts into question as well the ways that, I mean, I don't want to like step into a, the sorts of productive, unproductive categories of labour that were um, produced in the 19th century, but it does really show us that um, their forms of work were much more varied than um, we might otherwise think, right, from those records. Um, So that's one area. I guess the other area as well, which we've already sort of touched on, is that um, it's actually quite clear that from those police registers that people did enter the Hijra community in varied circumstances and that there were varied sort of um, contexts of initiation um, into the Hijra community. And then the third thing I'd say is just that um, the category of eunuch was applied not only to members of the Hijra community, and I think that's where we've got to be really careful with using those records because we can, it's very easy to fix a Hydra subject, right, from those records, but actually um, because varied and diverse people were classified as eunuchs, um, we do need to be careful about sort of reading all those people as Hydra or extrapolating very neatly into how the Hydra community was, right, from those records. We, we we know, I mean, it's obvious now that the British uh, attempt to kill off the Hydra community wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. After independence, when the British left, the, the, the laws and rules against the Hydra community loosen up a bit? Or did that stigma and that level of police, police, uh, police, um, What's the word? Police harassment, violence, police harassment, (laughs) policing. Yeah, policing. Uh, Sorry, the level of policing did that kind of you know uh, loosen up a bit, or Mm. does that legacy still continue off today? Yeah. So it's a it's a really good question, and I have to say I, I do deal with it in the book, but I think it's a far more complicated question than I could deal with in the book. And so like, this is another area where, like, if you're um, a budding graduate student, please do more research on this. Um, but um, yeah, so the Criminal Tribes Act Part Two that is for was targeting eunuchs was actually repealed in 1911. And so actually, you know, well before independence, of course, but it does get taken up um, by the state of Hyderabad, which actually passes a version of that law, right? So the princely state actually adopts a version of what had been the act for the registration of eunuchs. Oh, wow. Um, And then that law from Hyderabad actually enters into the police acts of a number of states 
um, that had been um, either had been part of that princely state or that had parts of their borders, you know, overlapping with it. So um, it enters into the police acts of a number, particularly in, in southern India. And um, the eunuch sections of the those police acts have stayed on the books up until very recently. And so there has been in the last decade or so um, activism from the Hijra community and from um, trans um, people and other gender non-conforming people to try to um, get those sections of the police acts that were criminalizing um, so-called eunuchs in certain ways repealed. And you can see even that the term eunuch was used, right, in those police acts. So as a sort of bureaucratic and policing category, eunuch endures, right, into post-independence. Mm -hmm. India. So there's there's that sort of linkage of you know aspects of this 1871 law actually re being retained on the books and um, in some cases actually being applied as well um, up until the you know 21st century, um, and that would suggest a really high level of continuity, right? Um, at the same time, I think. I think it's a much more uneven picture than that, even if we're just talking about the legal history and the history of policing. Um, and so, like I suggest in the postscript to my book that um, it does seem that um, the policing of the Hydra community has been quite locally varied um, in that, although, um, you know, an activist uh, and NGOs have shown this extensively, um, Police harassment and violence is commonly experienced by Hydra um, households and Hydra communities, um, and other, you know, other gender non-conforming people in in right. present day South Asia. Right. At the same time, though, when we do see like in certain periods and places a really intensified anti-Hydra project. Right. And so I talk about in the book that like um, in um, in Mumbai in um, the 90s, there was sort of this heightened, um, pro, you know, sort of anti-Hydra project. And you see it in a few other cities at other times, right? Um, and so I think the question to look that really needs to be looked at more is sort of like um, trying to get a sense of those continuities and discontinuities, because on the one hand, it's very clearly like a colonial legacy, but I think it's more than just a colonial legacy, right? The question of like why South Asian governments continue to have a stake in the policing of the Hydra community is because of colonialism, but it's not just because of colonialism, right? right. And yeah. I think unpacking that and, and particularly in the middle of the 20th century, which is a period we don't know a lot about is, is really important. It's very cool. I think that's my that was my last question. Is there something you okay. want to add on, or you want to elaborate on, or maybe mention something that that would be interesting? Well, um, well, can I just do two things? Can I just um, I've been talking about the anthropological literature that's so great, and I people might want to read some of that if they haven't already. Sure. And so, Plug if I in. could shout out a few people, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so Gertrude Reddy's book um, with respect to sex is sort of like a classic, um, which you know, definitely people should read. Um, 
Also, more recently, Adnan Hossein's um, book Beyond Emasculation on Bangladesh is really, I think, important, especially for because it has been a sort of India bias within a lot of the Hijra literature. Um, and also, um, Vaibhav Sarya's um, book Hijra's Brothers Lovers um, is also great. Um, but there's also been work that might be a little bit more difficult for people without access to, you know, um, academic journals to get a hold of. Um, but it's really, it's really good. And if people would like, um, you know, anything in particular, they can let me know. But um, yeah, work by um, Anuruddha Dutta, for instance, um, Jeff Roy and Claire Pammon, who both are more performance studies people um, and musicologists in Jeff Roy's case, and also Shanaz Khan, who works on Pakistan. It's really great. And th there's many more people I could mention. Um, so there's that. And I guess if I can also say, if people are wanting to do more research on this, as I said, we don't know very much at all about the Hijra community, but also about other um, groups of who we might call gender non-conforming, right, prior to really the 1850s and especially prior to 1800. And so that's an area where I think there's a lot more research to be done. Um, and also, as I said, around actually around the middle of the 20th century, I think, is also another period that there's a lot more work to be done on. And we also know more about Northern India and Western India. So I think if people are working on, on the south, on Southern um, parts of India or on, you know, also Eastern India and Bangladesh, um, there's more work I'm sure to be done on Pakistan as well. So yeah, there's also this sort of like regional unevenness um, that I think um, I'm, I'm hoping like grad students and, and, and up and coming people will be able to really like deepen our understanding of Hydra histories. Very cool. Um, can you send me an email of all the books you mentioned and I can kind of write yeah. it down in a post? Yeah, that would be great. And That'd I can tell them like, this is a great, uh, this is all the books mentioned. Yeah. All the works mentioned. Yeah. I'll do the and, historical uh, ones too. Yeah. And yeah. um that's it. Anything else you wanna talk about? No, I think that's it. Thanks so much for the invitation. No, thank I've you been, so much. I mean I've been loving the podcast. I've been listening to it for a while. So I was like, yes, please, I will definitely. <laughs> it's, it's thanks to guys like you who do all the work and I just come in and just put a mic there. So thank you so much for everything and all the hard work.